You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Welcome to COVID Chronicles. I'm Jenny Rudolph. I'm really delighted today to be here with my colleagues in organizational behavior, talking with you about the organizational aspects of COVID-19 care, and also how that intersects with this once in a lifetime moment that we're having around race and racism in the US and globally. Before I start, I'd like to just remind you of our travels on COVID Chronicles. We've talked a bit about how to team up for COVID care, looking at care in emergency departments, ORs uh, in the US and in Hong Kong and France. We then shift gears to think a little bit about the psychology of self-care for clinicians uh, during the COVID surges in California and in Queensland, Australia. Recently, we talked with a colleague in New York City, uh, Health and Hospitals, as well as Jody Hoffer-Gattel about how to think about the organizational aspects of care. And today I'm really delighted to talk about organizational transformation in the post-surge pre-vaccine moment. Organizational transformation in the upheaval and re-examination of institutional and structural roots of racism. So let me tell you a little bit about my guests. So first of all, I'm very pleased to have Jody Hoffer-Gattel back on the podcast. Jody is a professor of management at Brandeis University and director of the Relational Coordination Research Collaborative. Welcome, Jody. Great to be here, Jenny. And I'm also delighted to have Kate Kellogg, professor of business administration at MIT Sloan School of Management an ethnographer of work and change movements in healthcare and other organizations. Hey, Kate, great to have you. Thanks, great to be here. Victoria Parker, Vicki Parker, is an associate dean and associate professor of uh, management at the University of New Hampshire, Paul College of Business Administration and Economics. And Vicki's been thinking for years about how do we organize work in long-term care, which I think is a really tough and interesting problem right now. Welcome, Vicki. Thanks, Danny. And then last but certainly not least, my buddy from my PhD program, Associate Professor of Public and Nonprofit Management at the Wagner School of Public Service at NYU, Erica Foldy. Erica's thought a lot about social identity, especially race and racism in organizations. So I think she's going to have a lot to bring to our conversation right now. Welcome, Erica. Thanks so much for including me, Jenny. So I just wanted to start uh, briefly with what the heck is this group of gals doing together? Um, and Erica and uh, Vicki, we started together as a trio, I think in 2003, a career group to kind of support ourselves as newly minted or newly-ish minted uh, professors in uh, business administration, public service, uh, School of Public Health. Can you tell, it, tell us a little bit about how that got started for you and, and what you thought about it, Erica? For me, it was my first year as an assistant 
professor, I believe it was for you too, Jenny. I'm not sure about Vicki. I remember you coming to me and saying, I want to, I'm thinking of starting this group and there's this very cool person, Vicki Parker, and she would be fantastic for it. And I said, that sounded like a great idea. So when I talk to other people about it, I talk about it as a, as a peer learning group. You know, how do we, how do you handle difficult situations on the job? And, you know, how do, how can we provide not advice so much, but just camaraderie, curiosity, connections as part of the group. And support, yeah. Vicki, how about you? How have you seen it? I would say I have really thought about it as a peer mentoring group and, uh, you know, a way that we can um, learn both from each other and with each other as we've gone through various stages and career challenges. So it's been really valuable. So I think we've been together as a peer mentoring group, peer support group, career group, for close to 17 years, something like that. That's incredible. Wow. Are we that old? That's, that's disturbing. <laughs> we are. Not <laughs> possible. Okay. Ladies, what I want to talk about is this profound moment of the intersection of COVID-19 upending many things in our world. And now layered on top of that, the events surrounding the death of George Floyd and many other African-Americans here in the United States, upending our conversations around race and racism in a really good way. I think what's happening with COVID-19 care, especially as I've observed how healthcare systems across the world have been managing their surges and even places where it hasn't been as intense, hierarchy has been changed because people have to communicate up and down. Silos have been busted because people have to communicate quickly across specialties. The speed and type of process improvement we do when things are changing hourly, sometimes daily, in pop-up spaces with new pathophysiology that's not well understood, with teams that you haven't worked with before, is requiring and has required all kinds of innovation and communication of the sort that Jody Hoffer-Gattel has been interested in with relational coordination and many others of you have thought about in different ways. And now all of a sudden we have this other really important moment of disruption of business as usual because our baked in institutional aspects of race and racism are being challenged, rethought. There's a huge level of commitment to rethinking that. So I think the connection between those two is that they both have created this unfreezing moment in our society where the way that we've usually done things is being re-examined. The way we usually done things may be able to be changed. And so I'm really excited to have this quartet of you here to talk with us from your organizational perspectives about how we should think about this at this moment, what lenses we could bring to this, how you think about it, what you think is most interesting. So let me um, ask each of you if you would weigh in briefly. Erica, I'm going to start with you and then go to you, Jody. Um, what are the challenges or opportunities you see as most crucial at this moment of kind of unfreezing? Yeah, thank you, Jenny. So what I guess I would start out with is honestly the big opportunity right now is that not just race, but racism has become much more discussable. So for decades, even race was not terribly discussable, but that broke through a while ago, but now people are really naming racism. And I 
think that that's critical to actually making progress, um, both in the areas of, you know, things like policing and other things, but also in the treatment of COVID-19 and the fact that so many people of color are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I did want to add something and maybe push back a little bit on your, on your introduction. So sure. the first thing I would add is that Yes, people are naming racism, and yes, people are talking more and more about structural and institutional racism, and that's also very important. But I don't want people to lose sight of individual racism as well. So I think all those things are in play, and all those things are things that organizations need to address at you know, multiple levels. Erica, if I could, Erica Foldy from um, Wagner School at New York University, let me just come back to you for a few definitions to help us throughout our conversation here. We all bandy about the term racism, and I think it means really different things to different people. Could you share with us a little bit about how you think about what is racism, for example, at the individual level? Sure. I mean, the big distinction that people make is between individual level and you know, structural or institutional or systemic racism. And uh, individual racism, which is the one that we generally grew up with, is you know, people who, individuals who say or do uh, denigrating, violent, hostile things. They say something denigrating, they physically injure somebody um, or kill them. Um, that's individual level racism. It's on the kind of individual and interpersonal level. Structural racism, institutional racism, and you know, there are some fine distinctions here that I don't think we need to get into, but it's basically about how broad societal policies and practices are institutionally embedded to affect the life chances and the life outcomes for people of color um, compared with white people. So, you know, an example is the way that traditionally police departments have looked for crime in black neighborhoods um, as opposed to white neighborhoods. There is structural racism in policing. There's structural racism in how we've, um, in the fact that we made the um, punishment for crack cocaine 10 times worse than for powder cocaine. Those are structural issues in the criminal justice system. But there's also individual racism in the, in, the, in the criminal justice system and individual police officers who do very bad things. So we need to think about both of those. Great, Erica, thank you. Um, and the reason I wanted to just bring that, those definitions in is I think it's helpful to have sort of a foundation to think about as we move through this conversation. So uh, Jody hoffer Gattel, I'm thinking that there's been so much on your mind. I, I really noticed the poignant um, intro to one of your newsletters that I received recently saying, you know, I can't breathe and I can't sleep, worrying about this and that having to do with what's happening in the current world around race and racism. But at the same time, I know you're thinking a great deal about uh, COVID-19 care via your wonderful network of healthcare organizations that uh, the relational Coordination Research Collaborative works with. There's so much happening around uh, disparities in healthcare that uh, are becoming visible through COVID care. But don't feel constrained by the things I'm bringing up right now. What's on your mind? What do you think we should be considering most right now? I, te I tend to be, I hope, some combination of a realist and an optimist. I see, as we all do, um, so much of what's going on and feel despair. And at the same time, I see an opportunity, maybe because the way things are coming together um, in so many waves, we have the climate crisis, we have the pandemic, and we have the ongoing 
ongoing cumulative crisis of racism, but all coming to a head. And I just see that the common theme that strikes me is that all of them are reminding us how interdependent we are across so many boundaries and how nothing can be accomplished without coordinated collective action. So there's no way that just by tackling our individual racism, for example, we're going to be able to change systemic or structural racism. And we certainly can't tackle a virus if we're all just going in our own direction, say, I'm gonna wear a mask and you're not, right? We, there's something about both crises that is inherently interdependent and requires coordinated collective action. And there's this sense that somehow we're all in this together. And maybe that hasn't happened before with racism. There's something different this time where you see more multiracial coalitions getting out there and protesting together. And this is not entirely coherent, but there's something about on reflection, being able to see with the pandemic, how much the US is missing a public health infrastructure. Uh, that would allow us to systemically and equitably and preventatively address uh, this, um, this public health crisis. And at the same time, I think we can see racism as, a, as an ongoing public health crisis. It certainly is deadly. It requires more thoughtful systemic approaches than any of us have, um, than we have collectively engaged in. I, I would love to share a visual, but a, a good friend and colleague had shared a uh, a poster that he saw at a, at a rally recently. And across the top, it says Black Lives Matter. And under that, treat racism like COVID-19. Assume you have it, listen to experts about it, don't spread it, and be willing to change your life to end it. And so, I mean, on one hand, you say, how could these two things be at all similar? But in a way, not only are they similar in highlighting the interdependence, but the, the ways that we're gonna actually address them uh, will require both individual action and um, a really high level of coordinated collective action. And I, I feel hopeful somehow that we're gonna get that and get a little bit away from our, you know, we're the cowboys out there doing everything ourselves um, toward a recognition that we are, we need to solve these problems together. Mm. Yeah. So I love that uh, parallelism of collective action are, is needed both for us to conquer the pandemic, but also to address the pandemic of racism. Mm. Uh, Kate Kellogg, I've admired your work for so many years, especially how you bring in the kind of micro perceptions of an ethnographer into challenges of social movements within healthcare, such as the duty hours changes, and you've been interested in other ways that collective action and collective change happens in organizations. But I'm wondering what's on your mind at this moment, um, you know, either as you listen to our colleagues here or, or before you came to this conversation this morning. Yeah, um, so what I'm seeing is that the health disparities and racial disparities that have already existed are being amplified during this crisis. In terms of collective action, one thing that has been inspiring to me in this, I've been doing some work in the nursing home industry and just seeing people come out of the woodwork from the state, from nursing home associations, nursing home facility operators, academia, 
all trying to work together from their different perspectives to try to address some of these problems. And I think that what you're seeing in the nursing home industry is you've got low wage workers caring for low income seniors. And the COVID crisis has exposed just how vulnerable the facilities are, um, particularly in a crisis like this. So I think this is an opportunity to re-examine how we're supporting these nursing facilities, how we're paying workers day in, day out. And so I'm particularly interested in work and employment interventions that we can be making to really address some of the staffing shortages that we're seeing in the nursing homes that are becoming so critical right now during the pandemic. Uh, Kate, just so people can imagine what you're talking about, what, what would those um, work interventions or changes look like? In the nursing home sector, there was a huge staffing shortage even before the crisis because of a full employment economy and low wages in the sector. And what we're seeing during COVID is that on top of that existing shortage, you're having a lot of call outs with workers because of fear or because of illness. And so it's exacerbating the shortage. And so one thing a lot of states have done as a creative solution is to introduce a new entry level position in nursing homes for people who have never been in healthcare before. And the idea is that you can bring this whole new set of workers in and create a career opportunity for them and a pathway by which they can come into nursing facilities and kind of help on the front lines during the crisis, but then also have opportunities um, for training and licensing and kind of moving up within a new career. So uh, that's one thing I've been working a lot on is there are a lot of different challenges that come up when you're trying to integrate a whole new group of workers into healthcare organizations and so I've been doing some work on what are the different problems and bottlenecks and how can you address each one of those. That's so interesting. And I think that's indicative of the characteristic unfreezing of this moment where job categories, job stratification, different levels of jobs, different specialties within jobs are more permeable, people are going across them in different ways, going up and down in different ways, new ideas are more readily being considered. Uh, and I think this is something that we could stir up together as a group in this conversation about how do these socioeconomic as well as racial disparities uh, maybe get addressed in certain good ways at this uniquely unfrozen moment. Vicki Parker from University of New Hampshire, I know that for years you have been studying long-term care, and so some of the things that uh, Kate has been talking about, I'm sure, have been on your radar screen. But I know you also are thinking about, um, you know, educating healthcare uh, managers at this time. I know you're thinking about a variety of other things from your research interests, such as patient-centered care at this time. So what's what's on your mind? What's what's catching your Attention, what do you think we should be focusing on? One of the things I was actually just thinking while Jody was talking was that um, while the pandemic, I think, initially presented to us as a crisis, the longer we deal with it, the more I think it's a bit more chronic in that um, there's not going to be a quick, you know, resolution to it. And it's changing um, people's perceptions of the riskiness of their work. 
um, and whether it's okay for them to engage in it or not. And I guess what just struck me is that um, the parallel with racism and especially structural racism as a chronic condition and how a lot of the conversations I've been in have been about how a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts that have happened in large organizations have been very one and done approaches, or, you know, we're going to train everyone on implicit bias, and then that's going to make it better, right? And I think what's really clear in this moment is that all those efforts have been, you know, they've been good, they've been better than nothing, you know, in their um, intention, but they're not enough and there's no easy fix and i guess to me that's the thing about the intersection of the two like it's a it's a multi-front situation and especially in to take it back to long-term care which is i think where you started right which is that um there is a in a lot of nursing homes in urban areas where there are large immigrant populations there's a race gradient going on there too in, mm-hmm. in staff. And so, yes, silos are breaking down, but there's still a perception that a lot of the work that the frontline workers are doing is unskilled. And yet when they're doing it for somebody you care about, what you realize is there's actually a lot of skill in that work. Yeah. Uh, Vicki, could you just uh, ex- explain what is the meaning of race gradient? in terms of the managers and the supervisors and sort of the um, the nurse managers generally being white, whereas the practical nurses and the nursing assistants often usually being um, people of color and often also immigrants. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, no, no, that's great. I just thought it was, I, I thought I knew, but I thought it was just such a great phrase. I wanted to make sure I understood it. Uh, Jody Hoffer-Gattel, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, just building on that, what has struck me another parallel between the pandemic and the structural racism is that the most essential workers have often been the least valued workers and have been occupied by people of color. And so that has increased the deadliness of this pandemic. And maybe we've been more sensitized to the racism at this moment because we have this whether conscious or unconscious realization that many of the people we deeply rely upon are undervalued and underpaid and underappreciated. That's at least come home to me a few times, you know, having to deal with this notion that I am right now an unessential worker in some ways and the most essential workers, maybe we're going out and clapping for them at seven o'clock, but they're not being systematically recognized for their full worth. And I hope we don't lose that coming out. Kate Kellogg, what, what are you thinking about this? Yeah, um, when Vicky said uh, the word race gradient, uh, sociologists um, have referred to this also as consolidated social structures. So for example, um, what this would look like in the nursing home industry would be that multiple status characteristics cluster together, right? So that you have you know, race, gender, professional um, category, US born versus not US born, all clustering. And so in some work that I've done with Julia DiBenigno in the hospital setting, look at at nurses and patient care technicians, Mm -hmm. what we've shown is that you often do have this consolidated social structure 
you know, for example, um, nurse, nurses tend to be white and US born um, and patient care technicians tend to be non-US born and non-white, for example. And one intervention uh, that works to get people working together better is if you start turning on the head some of those characteristics so that if you have, for example, nurses that are non-US born working with patient care technicians who are white and US born, you get more collaboration across the two groups. And so one intervention you could do is on purpose, be looking for people in the positions that don't fall into the typical consolidated social structure. Interesting, and I'd like to build on this idea of creative restructuring of work in the chronic or marathon world of the next few years where we are in some cases post-surge. I know in Latin America and Brazil where our colleagues are very much in the middle of everything, but we don't have a vaccine yet and there's going to be ups and downs and bumps and no kind of absolute static reality. And in this moment of upheaval regarding how we talk about racism and whether we are able to change our individual racism and our institutions. Kate, you're talking about a sort of reinvention, uh, reconfiguration. And I'd like to turn our collective attention that way right now as we think about these challenges and opportunities. Where do you see the opportunities for reinvention, reconfiguration, rethinking? that people who are on the front lines in healthcare, people who are senior administrators in healthcare could be thinking about? What kinds of things would you focus our attention on? Uh, Erica Foldy. So there's a really, to me, very hopeful and powerful movement in medicine called structural competency, which has some similarities to understanding the social determinants of health, but mm -hmm. I think it goes beyond that. So the idea behind structural competency is that um, it's new medicine for the inequalities that are making us sick. They mm. look at the relationships among race and class and symptom expression. And the way they define it is the capacity for health professionals to recognize and respond to health and illness as the downstream effects of broad social and political and economic structures. All this is, sounds like a lot of rhetoric. It's very abstract. But just to me, what a, a great example that they give is um, that it's very common in healthcare settings and honestly in organizations in general to look for, you know, individual, characterological, cultural, or in healthcare, uh, genetic explanations for why something happens, for behaviors or whatever. And what the people behind structural competency are saying is it's not necessarily that those things aren't there. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but don't go there first. First, go to structural explanations. So just as an example, you know, they give an example of a nursing textbook, which talks about different cultures and how they respond to pain. So this, the textbook is basically advertising a cultural explanation. And one of the things they say is Blacks often report higher pain intensity than other cultures. So you're a nurse. That's what you're taught. You know, it's possible that you might say, you know, someone comes in and presents with pain. You might say, well, people, you know, people from this group tend to report this a lot. It, it's actually shown in research that people of, of African descent are one third less likely to get the appropriate care for pain. So if you think this is just a cultural thing, maybe someone's really not having that much pain anyway, that may actually interfere with you providing the right treatment. Another way to think of this is, you know, if organizations as a whole 
and start encouraging their employees, whether that's in healthcare, whether it's in education, whether it's in you know, corporate environments, whatever, to start thinking structurally first, not to take out other explanations as well, but to go there first, as opposed to last or never. So I know that's coming into primary care and uh, a patient assessment and emergency departments in a variety of ways in terms of people's consciousness being raised about social determinants of health. But I love how you're broadening the aperture for us, Erica, to consider this as how people see the signs and symptoms that are in front of them, how they categorize them. And I think this is an incredibly important way that we might manage or, or take advantage of this unfreezing moment because we know from uh, social cognition, we know from studies of cognition in general, if you don't have a category in mind to see something, you won't. So mm -hmm. one of the lions of our field, Carl Weick, often says, it's not seeing is believing, it's believing is seeing. Mm -hmm. So I think part of what you're highlighting for us here, Erica, is changing our categories at this moment of how we perceive the needs of patients may be really important. I'd love to build on that by saying, okay, I totally agree with everything Erica said. And so what are some of the structures that might help to support that way of seeing and addressing the structural drivers of inequity? One thing that I've become fairly hopeful about are the the ability of healthcare systems to partner with a broader range of actors um, to address these social determinants of health. So networks between community organizations and health systems. So you don't have the health system almost like a fortress and that's where everything happens, but health system as part of a larger network of care and not having such a privileged position because we don't wanna wait till people end up in emergency room um, or in surgery. We wanna be, if we really are serious about the structural and social determinants of health, we want to build a, um, a health and social system that can at be, attend to those and capture things much more, uh, much earlier in the process upstream. Uh, Betsy Bradley has done incredible work, um, starting with you know comparing the OECD countries and where we spend our, our money, and of course, and what are our health outcomes. And the US, as many know, way overspends um, uh, other countries on a per capita basis and achieves lower outcomes. Um, but when you take into account how other countries spend some of that money on social childcare, free childcare uh, for, and, um, and higher, um, higher supports for people at all levels of income, then you see that you can take some of that same uh, funding and spend it in more proactive ways and get better health outcomes than waiting for you know all the high-tech medicine that we engage in that really doesn't address these broader issues. So I see basically a network of community and health organizations, um, which is what we're trying to study in something new called the Relational Society Project um, that will be looking at three communities in the US, one in the UK, one in Denmark, one in Norway, one in Nigeria, Pakistan, and China, um, to see how health systems are reconfiguring to to partner with other organizations to build a more a healthier, more relational society. So how we think about um, the connectedness among our health institutions yeah. uh, from primary care, from schools, from, and this is another thing that's coming into the dialogue around policing, which is, you know, can we turn some of that attention to preventative 
aspects of community care, the uh, service side of policing to some degree, and that, that's not my area of expertise, but I think it's important. Yeah. Uh, Vicki Parker, I know you've been thinking about this too. What, what's on your mind? Yeah, I was just gonna take um, Erica's point about the um, structural competence and in a different direction in sort of thinking about work and supervisors and managers, because I think that's another thing that comes up again with these um, low wage workers in healthcare is thinking about, you know, they're late and the typical reaction is to attribute it to an individual problem. But if you put the structural frame on that, then you start thinking about, you know, how many different buses do they need to take to get here? Like, is that even feasible given where we're located, you know, and what, what else is going on in their lives that um, needs to all be functioning 100% perfectly in order for them to be present and engaged at work. And um, again, taking back to the pandemic, how, where they're living and how many people they're living with is also affecting their health which can then be affecting their occupational health at work. So those structural differences uh, related to race, related to socioeconomic status, have a you know, very frontline impact on can you even get to work on time? Mm. So our time together is uh, drawing to a close and I'd like to uh, wrap up our conversation by coming to each of you for a brief thought, if you would, about where are you going to be directing your efforts in the next three to six months? What's of most interest to you? You have many choices. Uh, you're fortunate to have many choices on how you direct your attention. And I'm just wondering, kind of on a maybe even in a personal sense, um, you know, what's the wellsprings for you? This has been a challenging time. Um, where are you going to be directing your attention? Uh, where do you think it's going to make the biggest difference right now? Kate, hello. Very excited to be working on this pathway to opportunity for these low-wage workers. Um, so really looking at this full pipeline in terms of how do you do community outreach into these communities to attract the workers into the workforce, um, and then how do you get them hired, and how do you get them onboarded, and how do you get them trained? And so We've got a team of students um, from MIT that's a big volunteer group working with um, Massachusetts Senior Care Association, which is a nursing home association in Massachusetts, on projects in each of those areas. And um, one, one thing that's been really great so far is that as we get as an ethnographer kind of down in the weeds and like really trying to get this to happen in certain organizations, we come up with bottlenecks. And then we say uh, through the, the Nursing Home Association, please go to the state. You know, we need help on this area or that area. And be, maybe because of the unfreezing and the pandemic, it's really been amazing. You know, so we've seen, a, they're, they're starting to approve asynchronous online training for these workers in the nursing homes, um, some other regulatory changes that have had to be made. So it's been very inspiring both to work on this project and to see the wellspring of people coming together to kind of wipe away bottlenecks in, in the way. Mm, fantastic. Erica Foldy, what's on your mind these days? Where, where are you gonna be focusing your attention? So I'm working on a book with a colleague. Well, it's still very much in formation, but we're thinking of making it about a concept that we're right now we're calling racial structural practice. And it is about how people in 
many, many different contexts from healthcare to therapy to teaching uh, to corporate nonprofit organizations, how individual professionals can actually push against structural racism, even in their day-to-day jobs. Mm. Seems like this big, abstract, faceless, you know, kind of concrete wall, but we're trying to say, as a teacher, as a researcher, as a therapist, how are ways that you can kind of make little chinks in it in your daily practice? And we look at the individual level, the interpersonal level, the group level, and then also the structural So I, of course, love that idea, Erica, because I I talk a lot with healthcare organizations about how organizational culture is not stuck. It's not monolithic. It's not one thing. It's not unchangeable. And that every time you invite someone to speak up and receive that well, you're creating a culture of more openness and, and welcoming. Or every time you don't speak up or every time you silence someone, you're reinforcing a culture of silencing and indirectness. And so that dynamic model of culture that you're bringing it into how racism is built or, or, or de- dismantled seems really, really important right now. And thank you for sharing that idea. Jody Hoffer-Gattel, what's on your mind? Where are you going to be directing your attention? I, you've mentioned relational coordination, and I see that as um, a network of coordinated collective action, whether it's you know, a patient care team or a set of organizations that are engaged in um, creating change in a community. And I think it's a really uh, useful and flexible concept, but really what I see myself doing now is adding this more micro level to that, this level of empathetic human connection, uh, which I think is where it all starts. Uh, I don't think you can build shared goals, shared knowledge and mutual respect among stakeholders if you don't start with some kind of empathetic human connection where people see themselves in the other and see them, them, you know, connect across difference in that way of saying recognition. So really incorporating that micro level in my work and then this macro level of institutional policy change. And like Kate, I don't see it happening on its own. It's more like, what are the micro foundations uh, at this micro and, and meso level of, of creating policy change? It's happening in the way that, you know, Kate is describing in the nursing home sector where people are reaching out and making connections and that will lead to policy changes. So those kind of the micro, meso and macro and putting those together in what I'm calling the Relational Society Project. And it's been so exciting to see people from very different countries, including our colleagues, Muhammad Sadiq in Pakistan yesterday saying, yes, our healthcare systems are not functioning super well right now. um, And our government doesn't have a lot of trust, but the nonprofits are amazing in their response to the pandemic. And we will somehow, you know, find a way to, to get through this and to just see how some of these similarities, uh, how people are engaging in problem solving in this very, in this time, in very different contexts by linking across these, these levels from the human empathy right up to institutional change. That's what I'm really excited about. Mm. So uh, Jody hoffer tell using some terminology from our field of organizational behavior. So micro has to do with individuals, dyads, teams, Mezzo is the organizational level or perhaps even administration or departments within an organization. And then macro would be institutions, how they're structured, but also entire industries. And it's exciting to hear you talking about how this, you know, kind of flapping the entire carpet of the world right now might allow us to kind of get all those levels working together in a different way. So, um, 
Thank you for that. And Victoria Parker, coming to you last, uh, what, what's on your mind? Where are you going to be directing your attention? Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, the focus of my attention right now is on the education piece, especially the education of, um, you know, traditional college age and um, young adult graduate students making gradual moves towards, um, you know, doing things like making sure our curriculum is more representational of diverse people. But I think the piece we have been tiptoeing around are the the institutional and structural aspects of racism that Erica mentioned earlier, and especially how those are manifested and reinforced in a lot of um, different kinds of organizations. So, and, and it, you know, the whole field in some way is turning in this direction with the, the business roundtable, you know, having issued their statement about um, businesses also exist to do social good. So it's kind of like, how are we bringing that into the educational process? And that is, a, you know, that's obviously a massive culture change project, especially with faculty who don't see it as relevant to their discipline. And it's relevant to every discipline. So that's where my energy is right now. Well, thanks, uh, Vicki Parker, and thank you all so much for uh, spending time with me and sharing your thoughts about organizational transformation at this time of COVID-19 and racial justice reflections. Thanks to all of you. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.